I was thinking this week about one word that could summarize my life. One word that could summarize my life. And here, the word I came up with as I was studying for the sermon this week. The word is undeserving. Undeserving. We've been talking or singing this morning about freedom in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, the fact that Jesus loves us. How amazing is that? And the reality as we think about God's glorious salvation is this. We don't deserve any of it. We are undeserving. And as we look at the scriptures this morning and continue our study of the doctrine of the Trinity and see how the three persons of the Trinity are are intricately involved in our salvation, I think we'll see even more clearly how great God's grace is for us and how undeserving we are, which will make us truly grateful. So keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to the book of Titus in the New Testament. Titus chapter 3. We are continuing our summer sermon series, Father, Son, Spirit, a study on the Trinity. We're in Titus Chapter 3, love this passage. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Just a quick reminder, God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word is alive. And God's Word is powerful. And God's Word is truth. I'm grateful for the foundation God gives us that we call the Bible. Titus chapter 3 verse 4, the Bible says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So it speaks here of God the Father initiating His saving work in our lives. And he says it's by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the third person of the Godhead involved in this salvation experience. Whom He poured out on us richly through who? Jesus Christ our Savior, the, the second person of the Godhead. So that being justified by His grace, we might be become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a beautiful passage that speaks of our salvation and the role of the three persons of the Godhead in our salvation. So keeping that in mind, let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we are amazed by your love. As undeserving as we are, when we think about who you are and what you've done for us, it staggers the imagination. But Lord, we're grateful. 
and we want to know more. And not only do we want to know more about you, we want to know you in a greater, more meaningful way. We want to see, Lord, your glory in these moments. And so, Lord, would you work in our midst as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the Holy Spirit moves among us, granting us the gift of illumination, Would you move with power? Would you transform us? Would you change us? God, may we leave this morning knowing we have met with the living God. I think about, Lord, all that's going on in our world. All of the troubles and uncertainties and anxieties and even fears that people are struggling with in our our world. Lord, in the midst of all that's going on, we need to see you clearly. We need a fresh glimpse of your glory. We need to see your power and your might and your sovereignty and your holiness and your grace. And so would you, in these moments, Lord, help us to step away from the the cares and concerns that weigh us down. And Lord, help us to just see you. We'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I've given you a working definition of the Trinity, which is guiding our conversation through these summer months. And if you want to be able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity, memorizing this Brief definition is a great place to start. So let's just go over it once again. The Bible teaches that there is one true God eternally existing in three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that there is one true God eternally existing in three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've tried to show you Uh, that this definition is a biblical definition. And I'm attempting to show you in the remainder of this sermon series how this definition of the Trinity, this doctrine of the Trinity, matters in our lives. And, And we see the work of the triune God all around us. Last week we talked about the Trinity and creation. Today we're going to talk about the Trinity and salvation. Next week... We're going to talk about the Trinity and sanctification, Christian growth. But let's look at how the triune God has worked and is working so that we can be made new. And I have just really one simple premise this morning that we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking. It's there in your notes, and here it is. You ready? Our triune God saves. Our triune God saves. And hey, by the way, aren't you grateful for that? Our triune God saves. Listen to me. You cannot separate the the work of salvation from the doctrine of the Trinity. If you you deny the Trinity or or dismiss the Trinity, you are really getting to uh, the core of the gospel. You're taking away the power, uh, the realities of the gospel. Listen to what James White says about the Trinity and salvation. The gospel is the means by which the Father, in eternal love and mercy, saves men through the redeeming work of the Son, Jesus Christ, 
and draws them to himself by the power and regenerating work of the Spirit. The gospel, as it is proclaimed in Scripture, is Trinitarian. Remove the Father and you have no gospel. Remove the Son and the gospel ceases to exist. Remove the Spirit and the gospel has no existence. There is, listen, there is no separating the work of the triune God in salvation from the truth of the Trinity itself. So this is critical. If we want to preach the gospel rightly and truly, it is a Trinitarian gospel. And I want to show you that this morning. So I want to show you four Trinitarian aspects of our salvation. Four Trinitarian aspects of our salvation. And the blanks all begin with the letter A. That helps you out a little bit to to get this. The, The first aspect of our salvation I want you to see with me is salvation accomplished. Salvation accomplished. And here's what I mean by that. The triune God has worked in remarkable ways to provide salvation for sinners. God has has done something. Our triune God has done something to make salvation available for you and for me. So what has God done? Well, I've given you four words here that really summarize the the work of God in providing for our redemption. I had a lot more words. I, I spent most of this past week cutting sermon material. You need to understand that, okay? So just be grateful. Uh, because I had a lot of material. So I cut some, but I've come with, I think, the four key words that summarize what God has done for us. The first word is the word incarnation. Incarnation. Look with me in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. I want to show you how the three persons of the Godhead were involved in the incarnation. By incarnation, I mean the reality that Jesus... The second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to earth taking on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He came to earth, was born of Mary, fully God, fully man. The incarnation. So for us to have a Savior, listen to me, the Savior had to come, right? He had to, he had to be incarnated. Incarnate means in flesh. He had, to, he had to take on humanity so he could die for humans. And so how was the... The, the triune God involved in the incarnation. Well, look what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Love this passage. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, by the way, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the, the mother of John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Listen, if an angel spoke to you, you'd be troubled too. And it says there, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Hey, by the way, if an angel spoke to you, you'd be afraid too. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name, what? Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of 
the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so God the Father sends a messenger to Mary to give her this message. You're going to conceive. Even though you're a virgin, you will conceive a baby in your womb. He'll be the Son of God. And I, as the Father, will give him the kingdoms for him to rule and reign over. So we see here God the Father and God the Son. You say, wait, what about God the Spirit? Was he involved in the incarnation? We'll keep reading. Mary said to the angel, the obvious question, how can this be? How will this be? He says, I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of of God. In other words, for Jesus Christ to be sinless, he could not have a human father because a human father would pass on the sin nature that we inherited from the first father named Adam. For Jesus Christ to take on human flesh and still be sinless, the conception had to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see here the father speaking. You'll conceive a a baby in your womb. His name will be Jesus. He will be the Savior for the world. And Mary's, how can this be? The Holy Spirit's going to do it. The power of the Spirit will work in your womb to to bring about this, this conception. So in your womb will be the fullness of God in helpless babes. So you see there... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all involved in Jesus Christ leaving heaven and coming to earth. That's called the incarnation. But there's a second word that that expresses what God has done for us. The second word is perfection. Perfection. Not only did Jesus Christ leave the unceasing worship of heaven and come to this earth, when Jesus Christ lived upon this earth, as fully human and fully divine, he lived a perfect life. In other words, Jesus Christ never sinned. For him to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins, he had to be sinless. If he was not sinless, he would have been paying for his own sins. But because he was sinless, he could go and take all of our sin on himself and pay that debt that you and I owe. So he had to be Perfect. Look what it says over in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, as I live on this earth in human flesh, and I live a perfect life performing miracles and teaching and ministering, I am following the pattern of the Father. So you see there, the Father giving Jesus instructions, and Jesus Christ seeing the pattern and the instructions of the Father, the commands of the Father, and then perfectly as the Son, obeying the commands of the Father. So you say, wait, I see the Father, and I see the Son as Jesus lived a perfect life. Where was the Spirit? Well, I'm glad you asked. Over in Acts chapter 10, when when Peter is preaching to Cornelius, In verses 37 and 38, here's what Peter says about the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He says, 
that Jesus Christ, now think about this, Jesus Christ lived and ministered in the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was giving Jesus in his humanity the power he needed to obey the Father. So all three persons of the Godhead are at work here so that Jesus Christ can live a perfect life and go to the cross and die for sinners like me. Isn't that good? Perfection. And not only did Jesus have to be perfect to die in my place, Jesus had to be perfect to give me righteousness. The reason I can stand before the Father is not because I'm good, it's because Jesus is good and he has given me imputed righteousness that surrounds me like a robe so that when God looks at me, he sees not the the frailty and the weakness and the sinfulness of Wade Humphreys, he sees the perfection of his son. And that perfection was lived out, it was earned while he walked on this earth, obeying the Father following his pattern in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, hey, real quick, there are some implications here. If Jesus Christ needed the power of the Spirit to live a sinless life, to obey the Father, how much more do we need the Holy Spirit to live a a life of of obedience to the Father? And, And if Jesus Christ did great and mighty things in the power of the Spirit, hey, guess what? You and I can do great and mighty things for the glory of God in the power of the Spirit as we live a life that's filled up with him. And so we see here that the the triune God was involved in incarnation and perfection. I love this quote from Fred Sanders. The work of the Holy Spirit surrounds the work of Jesus Christ. You can't separate the two. They are inextricably linked. But there's a third word here. Not only do we see incarnation and perfection, we see crucifixion. Crucifixion. Look over with me in Matthew chapter 27. I know I have you flipping around a lot, but these are critical passages that I want you to see. Matthew 27, verse 45. We are centering in now on the crucifixion narrative. It says, from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in this verse, Jesus Christ is quoting Psalm 22, and he's making those words his own. He's saying to the Father, as I I take on the sins of the world, and you see that I've become a curse for ruined sinners, I've taken on their curse for them, so I could die in their place, The Father, who is too pure to even look upon evil, turns away from the Son. I don't understand that, but it happened. He says, I'm I'm feeling the forsakenness of this moment. I've taken on the sins of the world. I'm I'm dying for, for the evil of humanity. Every wrong thing that we've ever thought or said or done was placed upon Christ, the perfect one. He took our sin. He became a curse for us. And in that moment, as he was bearing the weight of the sins of the world, and the Father was punishing our sins by punishing Jesus in our place, Jesus Christ felt his forsakenness. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have that forsaken me? So we see the Son on the cross dying for us. We see the Father, too pure to look upon evil, pouring out his wrath upon our sin. 
It says some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died on the cross. Now look in verse 51. I love this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, 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 the curtain in the temple was about 45 feet high, and it was torn from top to bottom. In other words, God did it. After Jesus Christ died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, God the Father accepted that payment. And then God the Father could rip that curtain in two and say, Now you have access to me through my Son. You don't have to go into the holy place or, or the holy of holies. You can come directly to me, into my presence, through the shed blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is on the cross dying. The Father is pouring out his wrath, punishing our sins by punishing Jesus in our place. And then when Jesus dies, the Father rips the curtain in two. That's cool, isn't it? Wait, where's the Holy Spirit? He's giving Jesus the power and wherewithal to obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. So all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the crucifixion. There's a divine transaction happening here as Jesus Christ pays for our sins. Crucifixion. I think about that moment when Jesus Christ was bearing the sins of the world and God the Father was pouring out His wrath on the Son. The wrath that you and I deserve. I thought of a a song. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turned his face away as wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I'm grateful for the deep, deep love of God displayed at Calvary. Aren't you? Crucifixion. But there's a final piece of this redemptive work that we need to understand. We've talked about incarnation and crucifixion and perfection, but fourth, resurrection. If Jesus Christ had died on the cross and stayed in his tomb, we'd all be in trouble. We'd be in our sins. Because that would demonstrate that Jesus Christ was not who he said he was. But because Jesus Christ was God on earth, he was raised from the dead, defeating death itself. And all three persons of the Godhead were involved in this. So look look what it says over in Acts 13 with me, very quickly. Acts 13, 29. The Bible says, When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from death. The dead, speaking of God the Father raising his son from the dead, because it mentions down in verse 33, you are my sons, quoting Psalms. Today I've begotten you, I've brought you forth from the dead. That's what that verse is referring to. And so we see here that God the Father raised his son from the dead. And now look over in Romans chapter 8 with me very quickly. It says in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So who's the one who dwells in you? The Holy Spirit. 
It mentions here the Holy Spirit was the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So watch this. God the Father was involved in raising Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit was involved in raising Jesus from the dead. You say, well, Jesus was just kind of a bystander. He was dead. He couldn't do anything right. And he was brought back to life. You know what Jesus said over in John chapter 10? Listen to this. Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. Then he said, listen, If I lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. So I can't understand this, but God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were all involved in the glory of the resurrection. They were all involved in that. And because of the resurrection, because Jesus Christ has defeated death, he can give us now life eternal. And that's good news. And so we see salvation accomplished. You've heard the phrase, mission accomplished. The triune God has accomplished salvation for you and for me. But let me just show you very quickly. Salvation applied. Salvation applied. We've got to speed up a little bit. Salvation applied. The triune God applies the finished work of redemption to individual sinners. So it's one thing to know that story about what the Lord has done for us to provide salvation. But how do we appropriate that? How do we, how do we take hold of that salvation which, which the Lord has accomplished? How is it applied to our lives? Well, the triune God does that. He does this in two major ways. And again, I had more points, but I had to delete. Two major ways he applies salvation to us. Number one, he does this through the gospel call. The gospel call. God calls us, listen, to embrace the salvation he has earned for us. The gospel call. And the gospel call has two aspects. The first is an outward call. Look over in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. Notice it mentions God, it mentions the Holy Spirit. Then it says, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. And notice in that context, it mentions this being called through the gospel. So, So here's the reality. I want you to hear me carefully. If you've heard the gospel and you're hearing it right now, Amen? If you've heard the gospel, you've been called by God to be saved. You know, there's all this theological debate about soteriology and all these different things. Am I called? Am I not called? If you've heard the gospel, you've been called. You've been called. The Bible teaches. He calls through the gospel. So there's this, this gospel call. God is saying to a fallen world, when the gospel goes forth, I have done everything necessary to save you. I've finished the work of redemption. It's been done. Now you need to receive that finished work. That's the gospel call. But not only is there an outward call where we hear the gospel with our ears, there's an inward call where God works in our heart. An inward call. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. 
He says, starting in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So listen to me. Here's what happens when someone is saved. Here's what happened to me when I was nine years of age. When I was nine years of age, sitting at my dining room table with my pastor, I had the outward call. I heard the gospel with my ears. And simultaneously, the Holy Spirit was working in my heart to show me how much I needed the gospel. Showing me I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And at that moment, I was overwhelmed by my sinfulness, my need for forgiveness, and I called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father is calling by allowing us to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit is applying that to our hearts, showing us how much we need the good news. Amen? That's the the gospel call. That's how the the gospel is applied to your life and my life. Here's the second way. That salvation is applied. Regeneration, back over in Titus, where we started this morning. Titus chapter 5, again, um, chapter 2, or chapter 3. It mentions all three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, the, so when we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit makes us a brand new person. The Father calls. We hear what Jesus Christ has done. When we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit at that moment regenerates us. We're born again. We're made brand new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? That's regeneration. And so those are two things God does to apply the gospel to our lives. When we place our faith in what Christ has done for us, and what the triune God has done for us in providing salvation, we believe in the, the, the gospel. At that moment, we are regenerated. We are made brand new. And I could talk to you about adoption and justification and reconciliation, but we'll do that some other time. Let me quote to you from Fred Sanders. God in himself is Father, Son, and Spirit. So in the economy of salvation, the Father sends the Son and the Spirit. So in our experience, the Father, watch this, accomplishes salvation for us in the Son and applies it to us in the Spirit. So if you are saved, if you're here and you're saved, it's because of what the three persons of the Godhead have done for you. You know, if someone provided the money, listen to me, say you had a huge debt, I mean a huge debt that you could not pay off yourself, and someone said, I'm going to pay that debt for them, and they had this huge sum of money to pay off that debt. The fact that they had the money available wouldn't mean much to you if you never heard about it, right? You would need somebody to tell you, hey, so-and-so has said they'll pay off your debt, and then you would have to receive that payment, and apply it to your indebtedness, correct? The fact that the money's there doesn't forgive you of your debt. It has to be personally applied and appropriated in your life. Listen to me. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for the dead doesn't mean you're automatically saved. You have to accept what he's done for you. You have to hear about what he's done for you. Then you have to accept it as a free gift by faith. That's salvation applied. But third, I want you to see salvation assured. Salvation assured. By that I mean the triune God finishes what he starts. And he wants us to know that. 
Now, let me just tell you something on the front end of this discussion, because we're going to talk about eternal security a little bit, and the whole idea, or the question, can people lose their salvation once they're saved? If, if I entered into salvation by the grace of God, but then I had to keep it by my performance, I would be terrified. Because I know me, and I'm not good enough to perform perfectly before a holy God. I, I don't keep myself saved. I'm saved because the work of redemption is complete. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, he paid for all my sins. Not just the ones I committed before I was saved at nine years of age, but the sins I would commit through in my entire life. He paid for them all. So keeping my salvation is not up to me, it's up to God. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are eternally secure. If you are truly saved, you will never lose your salvation because of what Jesus Christ has done. He said, wait, what about a person who, uh, who professes faith in Christ and they just turn their back on God and just, and just run away from Him and, and, and just live a, just a, a life of debauchery and evil and just there's no concern about God. Listen to me. It was not that they were saved and then lost their salvation. It was that they were never saved in the first place. Now, I'm not saying that, that saved people are perfect, but there's a working that happens in a saved person's life that demonstrates they're truly his. The Bible calls it fruit. And listen, God doesn't want us to wring our hands saying, am I truly saved? Can I lose my salvation? God finishes what he starts. Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he, so if God started a work in my life at nine years of age, guess what? He's going to carry it through. And not only is that true, but he wants me to know that. He wants me to have that assurance. So how does the triune God, watch this, give us that, that assurance of our salvation? Two things. This involves the sealing of the Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that when you heard the gospel and you believed, at that moment you were sealed in the Spirit. That's an, an, an objective reality. Now, when I was nine years of age, I didn't understand that's what was happening when I called out to Jesus. I didn't understand that at that moment of conversion, the Spirit sealed me. But it was happening. It happened. He sealed me. Whether you understand it or not, whether you feel it or not, on, on, on your good spiritual days, your bad spiritual days, doesn't matter how you feel, you've been sealed. God has done that. You don't deserve it. God's done that. You're sealed in the Spirit until the day of redemption, the day when Christ comes back to settle everything. So you are sealed by the Spirit. So listen to me. For you to lose your salvation the Spirit would have to stop sealing you. He'd have to leave you. And that just don't happen. You're His. You're sealed in the Spirit. Whether you feel it or not, you're sealed. That's what the Bible says. You've got to believe the Bible by faith. Take what God says, His promises by faith. Believe what He says. The reason that we cannot lose our salvation is because we're sealed 
in the Spirit. John 10, Jesus says, Those who are mine are in my hand, and no one or nothing can snatch them from my hand. I heard Adrian Rogers say this one time, and it made so much sense. He said, Don't you think if Satan could snatch you from the Father's hand, he would have already done it? (laughs) But guess what? I'm still his. I'm still the Father's. No one, nothing can snatch me from the Father's hand. I've been sealed in the Spirit. That is an objective reality that the Bible teaches that we are to believe. But there is this inner witness of assurance that comes from the Spirit. In other words... God works so that our, listen to me, our, our feelings, our experience begins to line up with the objective reality. Our subjective experience lines up with that objective truth. Look over in 1 John. I want to show you how all three persons of the Godhead are involved in you having assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 4. And you're, you're looking at the notes saying there's no way it's going to get done. I'm going to get done. Hang with me. 1 John 4. 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Here's what John is saying. This is the way we know we have a relationship with God. We're his, he's ours. Why? We have the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. We have seen and testified that the Father, first person of the Godhead, has sent his Son, second person of the Godhead, to be the Savior of the world. So we've heard the gospel. We know those truths about the Father sending the Son to die for our sins. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. In other words, John is saying, how do you know you're saved? Well, you believe the truth of what God has done And you know by the indwelling Spirit, you're His. How do I know the Spirit lives in me? Because I'm not the same person I was five years ago. I'm not perfect. Not where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. Amen? He's he's changing me. Hey, listen to me. You have the ministry before you of a, a pastor who's being changed by the Spirit of God. He's changing me. And if you're a believer, he's changing you too. And one of the evidences that the Spirit is in me is conviction. I tell people, one of the ways I know I'm saved is because I can't get away with anything. When I blow it, listen, there's instant conviction by the Spirit of God saying, Wade, you shouldn't have done that. You need to get right with the Father. And that activity of the Spirit in my life convicting me, changing me, is evidence that I am abiding in the one true God. And so we see this objective reality of sealing of the Spirit, and then there's this subjective experience as the Spirit works in our life, and those things line up, and that gives us assurance. And the triune God is involved in that. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it great that God doesn't just save us, He wants us to know we're saved. He wants us to know we're saved. He doesn't want us tossed to and fro with our feelings. He wants us to know that we're saved. You know, when uh, I proposed to Claire, I had an engagement ring that I gave her. And that ring was a, a, was a promise to be fulfilled. It was my way of saying, Claire, I'm serious about this. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish the deal. I'm, I'm going to marry you. I want to make you my wife. And this ring, every time you look at it, is a, is a promise for me that I'm going to follow through. And that's what the Holy Spirit is to us. At the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit seals us. By the way, that word sealing used there in Ephesians 1 is the word for engagement ring in the Greek language. He gives it to us as an engagement, a promise that he's going to finish what he started. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? And so the, we see your salvation is assured by the triune God. So we've talked about, just real quickly, we talked about salvation accomplished and applied and assured, but fourth and last, I want to talk to you about salvation appreciated. The triune God helps us, watch this, to enjoy his glory, grace, and goodness. One more passage. Turn to 2 Corinthians 13, very end of that chapter. I mean, that book, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Look how Paul closes this letter to the church in Corinth. I love this. So wait, why do you hold to the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, Paul believed in the Trinity. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I believe what the Word of God says. Amen? Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He's talking to Christians here. He's saying, may you enjoy the ongoing grace of Jesus, the ongoing love of the Father, the ongoing fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know what Paul's saying there? Paul is saying that the triune God not only wants to redeem us and save us, he wants us to enjoy it. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are working in your life so that you can understand the full import of what he has done, so you can stand back and be amazed and say, Wow! Wow! Look at what God has done. God wants you to appreciate what he's done for you. Michael Reeves says it like this, and this is a great quote. My new life began when the Spirit first opened my eyes and won my heart to Christ. For me, that was when I was nine years of age. Then, for the first time, I began to enjoy and love Christ as the Father has always done. And through Christ, for the first time, I began to enjoy and love the Father as the Son has always done. That was how it started, and that is how the new life goes on, by revealing the beauty, love, Glory and kindness of Christ to me. The Spirit kindles in me an ever deeper and more sincere love for God. And as He, oh, I love this. And as He stirs me to think ever more on Christ, He makes me more and more Godlike, less self obsessed, and more Christ obsessed. Reeves is simply saying the triune God's involved in helping me to see the glory and beauty of the God that I've come to know through Jesus. He's helping me to enjoy salvation. Isn't that awesome? He's helping us to enjoy, to appreciate what he's done for us. There's a couple in this uh, church, and uh, I was talking to the husband. He's a friend of mine, and they were married over a year ago. But they settled into their first home that they bought, and they were going through some stuff. And a year after the wedding, they found some money that someone had given them as a wedding gift. Just out of the blue. You know when you get that unexpected money, how much of a blessing that is? And they had money for a date to go celebrate, right? 
But their, their immediate thought was this. We never wrote them a thank you note. We, we, had, we had this money. What a blessing. But the person thinks we don't appreciate it. So you know what they did immediately? They got a thank you note and sent it. They were so grateful for that gift. And that's what the work of the triune God and our salvation should do for us. Wow! Look what God the Father has done. Look at how much he loves me that he gave his only son. Wow! Look at the unfailing, unconditional love of Christ that he went to the cross and died for me. Wow! Look at the Spirit who calls me and who seals me by his grace. Wow! Then my thought is this. I should show him how grateful I am. I should let him know I'm thankful. I should live with an ever-increasing gratitude to God. Salvation appreciated. So, our triune God saves. And we should recognize and rejoice in all that the triune God has done for undeserving sinners. Say, wait, how would you summarize your life? Forgiveness and freedom and all the physical and spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ. How would you describe your life? Here it is, ready? Undeserving. Undeserving. But I'm so grateful to our great God for His redeeming love.